Chapter One of Howard's. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. Howard's by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter One Twenty Years. Twenty years ago, yes, twenty years ago this very day, and there were men among them who remembered it. Only two, however, and these were old men whose day was past and who would soon be compelled to give up work. Naturally, upon this occasion, these two were the center figures in the group of talkers who were discussing the topic of the hour. I said old Tipton. I remember it as well as if it were yesterday, for all its twenty years sin. Eh, but it were cold. To coldest neat it to winter, and to winter were a bad un. To snow were two foot deep. There were a big rush of work, and we'd had to keep the fires going out midnight. There were a chap workin' then by the name of Bob Letham. He's dead long sin. And he went to the foundry door to look out. You know how some chaps is about seeing how cold it is, or how hot, or how heavy the rain's comin' down. Well, he were one of them sort. And he mun go and take a look out at the snow. Come in, the fool! says I to him, what in the stick in the thick yed out there for? As if it were midsummer, instead of being cold enough to freeze the tail off a brass jackass. Come in with the. Ay, he says, a chatter in his teeth. It is cold, surely. It's a note to stiffen a on. I wish it did stiffen thee, I says, so as we mote set thee up as a monument at the front o' asylum. And then all at once I heard him gay a jump and a bit o' yell, like under his breath. God almighty, he says. Summat the way he said it sort o' wackened me. What's up? I says. Come here, says he. There's a dead lad here. And when I get into him, sure and no, I thought he were read. Drawed up in a heap nigh the door, there were a lad lying on the snow, and to stiff look on him, mote again ony mon a turn. Latham were bending o'er him, with his teeth chattering. Blast thee, I says, why dost not thou lift him? Betwixt us we did lift him and carry him into the works and laid him down nigh one of the furnaces, and to fellies come crowding round to look at him. He were a lad about nine year old, and strong built, but he looked more than half clemmed, and arter we strubbed him a good bit and getting him warmed enough to come round the manor, to where he set up and stared round were somewhat queer. Mesters, he says, horse and shaggy, how only are you getting a bit of bread? 
Bob Latham's missus had put him up summat to eat, and he brought it and gave it to him. Well, the little chap almost snatched it and crammed it into his mouth a great mouthfuls. His hands trembled so he could scarce hold the meat and bread, and in a bit us as were standin' looking on seed him sort to choke, as if he were going to cry, but he swallowed it down and did not. I haven't had no to eat a long time, says he. How long? says I. Seemed like he thought it o'er a bit afore he answered, and then he says, I think it mun have been four days. Where are you fro? One chap axed. I come a long way, he says. I've been on the road three week. And then he looks up sharp. I run away for the union, he says. That were long and short on it. He had to pluck to run away for the union, and he'd had the pluck to stand out again clemming and freezing until flesh and blood had hold out no longer, and he'd fell down at the foundry door. I see the light of the furnaces, he says, and I tried to run, but I went blind and fell down. I thought, he says, as cool as a cucumber, as I were deein'. Well, we kept him all neat and took him to the mester in warning, and the mester gave him a place and he stayed. And he's been in the foundry for that day to this, and how he's worked and getting on, you see for your sense, for being at everyone's beck and call to buying out Flixton and setting up for his son. It's the Haworth Ironworks fro today on, and he will na make a bad mester either. Nay, he will not, commented another of the old ones. He's a pretty rough chap, but he'll do. Will Jem Haworth? There was a slight confused movement in the group. Here he comes, exclaimed an outsider. The man who entered the doorway, a strongly built fellow whose handsome clothes sat rather ill on his somewhat uncouth body, made his way through the crowd with small ceremony. He met the glances of the workmen with a rough nod and went straight to the managerial desk. But he did not sit down. He stood up, facing those who waited as if he meant to dispose of the business in hand as directly as possible. Well, chaps, he said, here we are. A slight murmur, as of assent, ran through the room. Aye, mister, they said. Here we are. Well, said he, you know why, I suppose. We're taking a fresh start, and I've something to say to you. I've had my say here for some time, but I've not had my way, and now's the time come when I can have it. Hang me, but I'm going to have the biggest place in England, and the best place too. Haworths shan't be second to none. I've set my mind on that. I said I'd stand here some day, with a blow on the desk, and here I am. I said I'd make my way, and I've done it. From today on, this here's Haworths, and to show you I mean to start fair and square, if there's a chap here that's got a grievance, 
Let that chap step out and speak his mind to Jim Howarth himself. Now's his time. And he sat down. There was another stir and murmur, this time rather of consultation. Then one of them stepped forward. Mister, he said, I'm to speak for him. Haworth nodded. What I've gotten to say, said the man, is said easy. Them as thought they'd gotten grievances is willin' to leave the settlin' on em to Jem Haworth. That's straight enough, said Haworth. Let em stick to it, and there's not a chap among em shan't have his chance. Go into Grayson's room, lads, and drink luck to Haworth's. Tipton and Harrison, you wait a bit. Tipton and Harrison lingered with some degree of timidity. By the time the room had emptied itself, Haworth seemed to have fallen into a reverie. He leaned back in his chair, his hands in his pockets, and stared gloomily before him. The room had been silent five minutes before he aroused himself with a start. Then he leaned forward and beckoned to the two, who came and stood before him. You two were in the place when I came, he said. You, to Tipton, were the fellow as lifted me from the snow. Aye, mister, was the answer, twenty year ago to neat. The other fellow, dead, eh, long sin. Every chap as were the ear, dead and gone but me and him, with a jerk toward his comrade. Haworth put his hand in his vest pocket and drew forth a crisp piece of paper, evidently placed there for a purpose. Here, he said with some awkwardness, divide that between you. Betwixt us two, stammered the old man. It's a ten-pun note, mister. Yes, with something like shamefacedness. I used to say to myself when I was a youngster that every chap who was in the works that night should have a five-pound note today. Get out, old lads, and get as drunk as you please. I've kept my word. But, his laugh breaking off in the middle, I wish there'd been more of you to keep it up together. Then they were gone chuckling in senile delight over their good luck, and he was left alone. He glanced round the room, a big, handsome one, well filled with massive office furniture, and yet wearing the usual empty, barren look. "'It's taken twenty years,' he said, "'but I've done it. It's done!' And yet there isn't as much of it as I used to think there would be. He rose from his chair and went to the window to look out, rather impelled by restlessness than any motive. The prospect, at least, could not have attracted him. The place was closed in by tall and dingy houses, whose slate roofs shone with the rain which drizzled down through the smoky air. The ugly yard was wet and had a deserted look. The only living object which caught his eye was the solitary figure of a man who stood waiting at the iron gates. At the sight of this man, he started backward with an exclamation. The devil take the chap, 
he said. There he is again. He took a turn across the room, but he came back again and looked out once more, as if he found some irresistible fascination in the sight of the frail, shabbily clad figure. Yes, he said, it's him sure enough. I never saw another fellow with the same done-for look. I wonder what he wants. He went to the door and, opening it, spoke to a man who chanced to be passing. Floxham, come in here, he said. Floxham was a well-oiled and burly fellow, plainly fresh from the engine room. He entered without ceremony and followed his master to the window. Haworth pointed to the man at the gate. There's a chap, he said, that I've been running up against here and there for the last two months. The fellow seems to spend his time wandering up and down the streets. I'm hanged if he don't make me think of a ghost. He goes against the grain with me somehow. Do you know who he is and what's up with him? Floxham glanced toward the gateway and then nodded his head dryly. Aye, he answered, he's Tinventon chap as has been thirty year at work at some contraption, and hasn't brought it to a yed yet. He lives i our street, and me and my missus has been noticing him for a good bit. He'll known finish the ting he's at. He's on his last legs now. He took the contraption to America thirty year ago, when he first get an idea into his yed, and he brought it back a bit sin, almost it the same fix he took it. Me and my missus think he's a bit soft i the yed. Haworth pushed by him to get nearer the window. A slight moisture started out upon his forehead. Thirty year, he exclaimed. By the Lord Harry! There might have been something in his excitement which had its effect upon the man who stood outside. He seemed, as it were, to awaken slowly from a fit of lethargy. He glanced up at the window and moved slowly forward. He's made up his mind to come in, said Floxham. What does he want? said Haworth, with a sense of physical uneasiness. Confound the fellow, trying to shake off the feeling with a laugh. What does he want with me? Today. I can go out and turn him back, said Floxham. No, answered Haworth. You can go back to your work. I'll hear what he has to say. I've naught else to do just now. Floxham left him, and he went back to the big armchair behind the table. He sat down and turned over some papers, not rid of his uneasiness even when the door opened and his visitor came in. He was a tall, slender man who stooped and was narrow-chested, he was grey, hollow-eyed, and haggard. He removed his shabby hat and stood before the table a second in silence. Mr. Haworth, he said, in a gentle, absent-minded voice. They told me this was Mr. Haworth's room. Yes, he answered. I'm Haworth. I want, a little hoarsely and faltering, to get some work to do. My name is Murdoch. 
I've spent the last thirty years in America, but I'm a Lancashire man. I went to America on business, which has not been successful yet. I, I have worked here before, with a glance around him, and I should like to work here again. I did not think it would be necessary, but that doesn't matter. Perhaps it will only be temporary. I must get work. In the last sentence, his voice faltered more than ever. He seemed suddenly to awaken and bring himself back to his first idea, as if he had not intended to wander from it. I, I must get work, he repeated. The effect he produced upon the man he appealed to was peculiar. Jim Haworth almost resented his frail appearance. He felt it an uncomfortable thing to confront just at this hour of his triumph. He had experienced the same sensation, in a less degree, when he rose in the morning and looked out of his window upon murky sky and falling rain. He would almost have given a thousand pounds for clear, triumphant sunshine. And yet, in spite of this, he was not quite as brusque as usual when he made his answer. I've heard of you, he said. You've had ill luck. Stephen Murdoch shifted his hat from hand to hand. I don't know, he replied slowly. I've not called it that yet. The end has been slow, but I think it's sure. It will come some. Haworth made a rough gesture. By George, he exclaimed. Haven't you given the thing up yet? Murdoch fell back a pace and stared at him in a stunned way. Given it up? he repeated. Yet? Look here, said Haworth. You'd better do that if you haven't. Take my advice and have done with it. You're not a young chap, and if a thing's a failure after thirty years' work, he stopped because he saw the man trembling nervously. Oh, I didn't mean to take the pluck out of you, he said bluntly a moment later. You must have had plenty of it to begin with, egad, or you'd never have stood it this long. I don't know that it was pluck, still quivering. I've lived on it so long that it would not give me up. I think that's it. Haworth dashed off a couple of lines on a slip of paper and tossed it to him. Take that to Grayson, he said, and you'll get your work, and if you have anything to complain of, come to me. Murdoch took the paper and held it hesitatingly. I, perhaps I ought not to have asked for it today, he said nervously. I'm not a businessman and I didn't think of it. I came in because I saw you. I'm going to London tomorrow, and shall not be back for a week. That's all right, said Haworth. Come then. He was not sorry to see his visitor turn away, after uttering a few simple words of thanks. It would be a relief to see the door close after him. But when it had closed, to his discomfiture it opened again. The thin, poorly clad figure reappeared. 
I heard in the town, said the man, his cheek flushing faintly, of what has happened here today. Twenty years have brought you better luck than thirty years have brought me. Yes, answered Haworth. My luck's been good enough as luck goes. It seems almost a folly, falling into the meditative tone, for me to wish you good luck in the future. And then, pulling himself together again as before, It is a folly, but I wish it nevertheless. Good luck to you. The door closed, and he was gone. End of chapter 1 Recording by Geoffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa